It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome to Episode 2 of the 1991-92 Utah Jazz season, the most pivotal of them all. In Episode 1, you heard where the Jazz stood after previous playoff burnouts, an announcement that stunned the NBA, and we opened a brand new building. Well, I, I think that we had a, a good core of guys and, the, and, the, and the, the team, the management was trying to figure out, like, what do we need to do next? And, yeah, we had those kind of first-round uh, flame-outs for a couple years in a row and kind of had that tendency in April to kind of go to sleep for a week or two, and it, would, and it cost us dearly a couple times in terms of home court advantage and, and division title, like you said. Because of the, the HIV virus that I have, uh, I will have to retire from the Lakers. We invite you all to use this arena to put it to work upon its completion so that it may truly feel the measure of its creation. That being to make the state of Utah and the city of Salt Lake an even better place to live and to work and to play. And now it's time for us to play the 91-92 season, but first we must get a better understanding of the engine, the man behind the Utah Jazz franchise, Larry H. Miller. And then as the season starts, the Jazz will be a little rocky and send one of the fan favorites packing. And before we're done, the team begins to find a rhythm, but a Carl Malone elbow finds Isaiah Thomas. It's all coming up on the 1991-92 Utah Jazz season, the most pivotal of them all. Welcome to day two of the 1991-92 Utah Jazz season, the most pivotal of them all. I'm David Locke, your host, taking you back almost 30 years on this journey. When you think of the Utah Jazz, you must always remember that none of this is possible without the incredible work of Frank Layden, who was the general manager when the team came from New Orleans, single-handedly marketed the team, and has been open and honest that he never thought it would work. But once Frank Layden got the roots in, it was Larry H. Miller that took the franchise to the next steps, buying the franchise from Sam Battistone and then buying it completely. And as we talked about in episode one, building the incredible Delta Center and as Steve Loom put it, bringing the Jazz into the big leagues. And to understand the Utah Jazz in 1991-92, you had to understand a little bit of who Larry H. Miller is now. The story that we know of his life is one given to the community more than just about anyone dedicating himself completely that to the point which it actually was cut short by health issues. And we see the success now in the rear view mirror, but this was just in the midst of it. His greatest accomplishment of building the Delta center had just been completed. And now it was his time to put his stamp on who the Utah jazz were. Craig Bowlerjack was the anchor for KSL Sports Beat 5 on Sundays. Spent a lot of time with Larry in those days. And the now TV voice of the Jazz tells us about the key characteristic of what made Larry H. Miller so special. On fire, as, as emotional, as dedicated as any individual I've ever come across. I mean, here's a guy that was a parts manager with a Toyota uh, for Toyota, uh, decided that he was going to take one of the biggest jumps in his life 
and basically change the entire structure of the state of Utah uh, in the sports world. And I think beyond, honestly, David, uh, some of the decisions he made in 85 and 86 to take the portions of the jazz uh, and had to push the loans uh, with multiple banks was just so bold. But you know what I think it does? It comes back and plays into this whole story is that that boldness built confidence and it also built competitive juices that he was not going to be denied. He had put so much on the table that he was dedicated to make this franchise a major player in the NBA. The role of an owner is one that's always questioned. Is it hands-on, hands-off? What's a great owner? What's a detrimental owner? Some leave no doubt, like those in New York, and some become the middle of controversy, like those in Dallas. Larry H. Miller's relationship with the Utah Jazz was one that was unique. Phil Johnson was an assistant coach on the Jazz, and he shares some of those stories of how Larry's role was different than many of the others. He used to come over there and line up with us and talk to us and be in the locker room before the game. That was just unheard of in those days. And, uh, uh, David, because most owners were supposed to be seen and not heard, really, not to be in the, uh, practice or not to go to game, uh, in locker rooms and so forth. And that was something that Frank did here with him was just amazing. Let him, had him come in the locker room and be a part of it and, uh, it's, it's really, it was, it was an amazing first. I think it was one of the first in the NBA to have an owner do that. It's so very true. When you go back and watch the old jazz games on YouTube or whatever, and you see Larry H. Miller standing right there next to Jerry Sloan as Dan Roberts, the in arena voice of the jazz today and then announces the starters. There's Larry giving each and every one of them a high five. There was a locker. Inside the Delta Center locker room, number nine, Larry H. Miller. It was a part of that boldness that Craig Bowlerjack talked about earlier. And in addition, the other characteristics of Larry H. Miller began to rub off on the team. His relationship with Jerry Sloan improved as time went on. And Craig Bowlerjack talks more about Larry H. Miller. When the Delta Center was built, he and I did the first ever sports broadcast live from center court in that building. And the pride he had was beyond compare. And I, I remember, you know, when, when people talked about his knowledge and his ability uh, to have a, uh, a picture-perfect mind where you could snapshot it, and he would remember photographic memories, what I'm trying to say. He reeled off that night the exact yards of concrete, the rebarb, the bolts, nuts, all the above that was in that building. It was his baby. It was it was something that I don't think men, many men could have completed in such a short period of time, but he forced that contractor to go fast track. Boldness and will, two words that exemplify the young owner of the Jazz at that point. But maybe the one that shouldn't be left out is shared here by Craig. But I learned a lot from him. He was um, he had a kind streak. He had a mean streak. He had a very business sense. And then also, we all know the emotion that he lived his life with. Uh, he was the most one of the most passionate men I've ever met. And sometimes we joked in press conferences, especially when it involved Carl Malone, how long this is going to take before tears flow. Yeah, but in reality, it was really the true Larry Miller. It showed you his passion and how much he cared not only for the franchise, but also for the city 
and for this this state and for this region. Uh, he put his neck out, and he wasn't going to about to let anybody down. So to understand the Utah Jazz and where the franchise was in 1991 as they started on this most pivotal season, one had to understand this dogged, passionate, bold, willful owner, Larry H. Miller. The man we now know, the man we remember so fondly, had not yet been formed. This was the year where he brought this franchise forward with the new building and then they answered on the floor. We'll go on the floor next as the Utah Jazz start their 1991-92 season as we continue on the 91-92 Utah Jazz season, the most pivotal of them all. Today's episode of the 1991-92 Utah Jazz season, the most pivotal of them all, is brought to you by Murdoch Hyundai. Located at 4646 South State Street, Murdoch Hyundai has instituted Murdoch Sure to help you in these times of COVID-19. Murdoch Sure will give you every single one of the cars online. So you can do all your shopping online. Then if you want to test drive, they'll bring it to you. 0% on all models, no payments for 90 days. And if you lose your job, Hyundai will pay up to six payments for you with Hyundai Assurance. So shop for a vehicle either at the dealerships at 4646 South State Street in Logan or in in Linden. Plus, Hyundai, six payments for you with Hyundai Assurance if you lose your job. It's all available for you at Murdoch Hyundai. Stop by. Either visit the car yourself or stop by online at MurdochHyundai.com. Life is complicated, especially right now. You're spending more time inside, unable to go to restaurants, and that means you're cooking dinner. But if you're like me, I hate cooking. Multiple trips to the grocery store, hours of monotonous meal prep just so you can scarf down your food in minutes. So when it's dinner time, I grab my phone, open up an app, and order something. But after convenience fees, delivery fees, and who knows whatever other fees, it ends up being close to $100 for two people. But then I met Freshly. Just put up your feet and relax while Freshly chefs and nutritionists do all the hard work. All you do is heat for three minutes and dinner's done. Imagine a better for you golden oven fried chicken, steak peppercorn with sauteed carrots and French green beans, and my personal favorite, buffalo chicken with loaded mashed cauliflower. It's got fewer carbs. That's just a few of the 30-plus health-conscious options to choose from. Freshly understands that food needs to be delicious, healthy, and simple, because let's be honest here, if it's not easy, I'm not going to do it, and if it doesn't taste good, I don't want to eat it. Freshly is offering our listeners $40 off, $40 off for their first two orders at Freshly.com slash LockedOnNBA. That's Freshly.com slash LockedOnNBA. It's time to get on the floor and play the 1991-92 season. And when we look back at how that year started, if you read the archives of the Salt Lake Tribune, you see the questions. Will the new players, Eric Murdoch and David Benoit, have an impact on the team? Will Mark Eaton or Mike Brown emerge as the starting center? And can second-year forward Walt Palmer hold on to his job? Well, the answer to that last one is no, because two-way guard... Corey Crowder beat him out for the roster. Yes, the father of Jay Crowder. And Isaac Austin would also surprisingly make the team after losing 23 pounds in the offseason. The Jazz would go through their camp and open up against the Seattle Supersonics in their fourth game of the year, opening the Delta Center. They already started the year on the road 
And in the loss to the Sonics, they started the year one and three. But Mike Brown with 10 offensive rebounds and Jeff Malone breaking out a slump would allow them to pound the Sacramento Kings and the Jazz would go to three and three. And all would move along with a heavy road schedule early. Eric Murdoch was getting the early minutes at backup point guard and the Jazz would head to Detroit. It was November 15th. It was just another one of the big Utah Jazz Detroit Piston games. This Pistons team had won titles with Isaiah Thomas and Bill Lambeer and the Jazz were trying to show they belonged. And if we read from the Salt Lake Tribune archives written by Steve Loom, the lead was, as usual, the Jazz-Pistons game looked more like WrestleMania than NBA basketball. The hero, Isaiah Thomas. The villains, John Stockton and Jerry Sloan. On that night, Thomas would score 44 points and the Pistons would defeat the Jazz in what Steve Loom wrote as the wildest contest this side of the WWF. But the game would be remembered for that physical play and the shenanigans of Dennis Rodman and the reaction of Jerry Sloan. See, Isaiah Thomas rolled past a Dennis Rodman pick. John Stockton hit the floor. Rodman scrambled up as though he was looking for a little trouble, maybe a little fisticuffs with John Stockton. Sloan raced onto the floor. Quote afterwards, said, I was upset the way Stockton hit the floor. Somebody's got to stand up for that guy, said Jerry. Maybe a quote you might want to remember before we're done with this episode. Jerry Sloan saying, somebody's got to stand up for this guy. Relative calm was restored, according to Steve Loom, and then Dennis Rodman walked over to the Jazz bench, stuck out his hand to shake Jerry Sloan's hand. Well, you can guess what Jerry's reaction to that was. He pushed it away. A technical foul came on Jerry, and the crowd went bananas in Detroit. Sloan afterwards says, I didn't feel good about getting a technical, but I'm not going to shake the guy's hand. I'm not into that. I'm not going to be intimidated. Rodman went to the free throw line, made the first free throw, pointed at Jerry Sloan, and then in one of his most memorable acts, Jerry Sloan blew Dennis Rodman a kiss as the refs hit the Pistons forward with his second technical, then more technicals, and by the time the night was over, the Jazz had lost. Isaiah Thomas had 44 points, Dennis Rodman was in the headlines, and Mark Eaton said he's a clown. He's not well-liked by anyone, and maybe that's fine with him. Seemed like just another night in the NBA until, well, maybe a few weeks later when some of this will all be remembered a bit differently. In the meantime, the Jazz continued on their road trip, and an interesting thing happened as the Jazz lost to Miami 111-91, a 20-point loss on the road. But fear not, nobody saw it. Fact, that Tuesday night, the Utah Jazz played Miami and it was not on local television. Anywhere. Brian Douglas, the Jazz Director of Broadcasting, said that nobody wanted the game. In fact, the Jazz were playing the Heat and just like last week's game against the New Jersey Nets, both Channel 13 and Prime Sports Network declined the opportunity to get the game. Douglas afterwards explained the 5.30 start is just not conducive to viewership. Couple that with the fact it's against non-exciting teams or supposedly non-exciting teams, and neither of them were interested. We wanted to do it. The club wants all of the road games on, but we couldn't get someone to air it. The Jazz promised that the rest of their road games that year 
would be televised. And so the Jazz sat at 5-5 five and five after that loss. Despite a strong performance, Delaney Rudd, who is now playing instead of Eric Murdoch, the Jazz lost in overtime to Dallas. And they came back 7-6. and six. And then they stunned Jazz fandom, trading one of everyone's favorites, Thurl Bailey. I think people were shocked. I think Thurl was well-liked. I think he did everything they wanted. He was... He was here his whole career, was one of their right, you know, stars when they were getting good. Mark Eaton would be quoted in the paper saying, holy bleep, that guy's been one of my best friends on the team for what has been going on nine years. I don't know what to say. I know rumors have circulated for the last couple of years about a possible trade involving him. It's just hard to believe it finally happened. And Thoreau Bailey be traded as number three all time on the Utah Jazz game played list number three all-time in minutes, and number four in scoring. He'd played 361 games in a row. And Larry H. Miller said, "You take a look at the guy as a citizen, and I'm not sure he has any peers in the league. Public appearances, charities, in terms of those kind of things, he's in a class by himself. From that dimension, it's very difficult to see him go. It's one of the things that seems kind of heartless about the system, but I guess the system is very unforgiving. Jazz assistant coach Phil Johnson remembers the necessity from a coaching standpoint of what they needed to do to fix their roster. We had had some issues at small forward. In, in fact, we, we, uh, when we played uh, Golden State and so forth, was uh, Thurl was more of a four-man, really. He played three, but we had Carl and we had Mark. And so uh, our perimeter game wasn't uh, particularly good. It was nothing against Thurl. Thurl was a great player, and we used, utilized him a lot. But we traded for Ty, and that gave us a, more of a perimeter player, although Ty was not a great three-point shooter, but he was a, a little bit more of a perimeter player. And so that's kind of where and we, we had drafted Blue Edwards, and so we, we improved our perimeter game uh, and got so that our small forwards are, were a little bit better. Jerry Sloan reiterated it at the time, saying it ends up being strictly a business decision. A lot of teams are smaller now, tough for us to play. Corbin gives us an ability to play smaller teams better than we were able to do before. Steve Loom, Salt Lake Tribune beat writer, remembers the trade making sense. Jazz at that point were reacting to the league. Golden State was starting to play small ball. Other teams were playing small ball and you know when when you had mark anchoring down the middle there and uh, his backup like uh, like a mike brown and other than malone you didn't have a very athletic front court uh, a spread the floor front court defensively you didn't have guys who could chase chris mullen uh around and and bother him my recollection is the jazz traded thorough again not because they were dissatisfied or anything like that he's obviously a great person but they were reacting to the league and they were reacting how teams were attacking them with Mark Eaton and they needed to get smaller and more athletic. But as Brad Rock talked about in our opening episode, it was also a sign of a change by the Utah Jets. Thurl Bailey was a favorite. Daryl Griffith had been released and the Jazz were playing to win, but they hadn't done very well so far. They were nine and seven, and Deseret News jazz beat writer Brad Rock began to wonder. 
Around the team, it was it was Jerry's team. I don't remember Jerry giving an inch. I don't remember the players saying anything about it. Uh, but I do remember the mood in the community. Mood with the media was kind of like, oh, oh, okay, all right. So we didn't think they'd be that good, you know. I I myself had kind of looked at it and thought, well, they're they're going to be a pretty good team, and and that, and that was about it. When they when they start out nine and seven, I kind of thought, oh, okay, so so this is how good they are. Okay, so maybe they're not. Maybe they're not great. Maybe they're not going to be go beyond and win division championships and win conference championships. On the other hand, the coaching staff was not worried about the early season struggles. I don't recall feeling that much pressure over the years with this franchise. I'm going to tell you something about Larry Miller. Uh, he really did not. It, it, working for him and this franchise, uh, I just didn't ever really feel that much pressure. And I know Jerry, you know, felt, you know, I had to, we, we both had to feel it at the time and so forth, but uh, we just knew we had a good team. And if the jazz November 29th performance against the golden state warrior was any indicator, a 135 108 win that avenged the loss in the last regular season game of the year before that cost the jazz, the Midwest division, maybe the jazz were coming together. Don Nelson, after the game, said, this is the best team we've played this year, and we've played all the good teams so far. They're going to grow together, and it would not surprise me at all if they had a shot for the best record in the West. I think they're that good. Carl Malone had had 31 points and 11 rebounds. The Jazz were led by John Stockton's 23 points and 21 assists that night, and Don Nelson said he's the perfect point guard. He gives assists. He can score. He's great in the open court. He plays great team defense. He plays great individual defense. There isn't a portion of his game that's missing. John Stockton could play in any era, Nelson continued. If there's one of him in the year 2050, he'll play for anybody too. Little did they know that John would come close to playing till 2050. Ty Corbin had 17 points in that win, and a very excited Larry H. Miller said, that's exactly what we expected when we made the moves we've made. It's exactly what we talked about. The There are so many smaller, quicker lineups now. We have a luxury of having two lineups, maybe something no other team in the league has. The Jazz would lose their final game of the month to the Phoenix Suns. It would also turn out to be the Jazz' thousandth game in Utah. So the month was over. The Jazz were 9-7. and seven. Mailman was delivering. 29 points, 11 rebounds, 3 assists. But it's the elbow he would deliver 14 days later that would make everybody start talking. That's next as we continue on the 91-92 Utah Jazz season, the most pivotal of them all. Hi, this is Nate Duncan from Locked On's Hollinger and Duncan podcast. Those of you who listen to our show know that I try to take a measured approach. I'm not prone to hyperbole. It really takes something special to get me excited. But with all that said, Theragun is simply one of the best products that I have ever used. I just turned 40. I've always loved to work out, to play basketball when it's safe. And as I got into my 30s, it just wasn't possible to do that anymore the way I wanted to because my body didn't feel right. And Theragun has helped me fix so many of the aches and pains. I tried everything, massages, 
chiropractors, this at-home device, handheld percussive therapy, has worked better than any of those for me. And now, the all-new Gen 4 Theragun has a proprietary brushless motor. It's so quiet. It's no louder than an electric toothbrush. And best of all, you can try Theragun risk-free for 30 days. There's no substitute for the Theragun Gen 4 with an OLED screen, personalized Theragun app, and the quiet and power you need starts at only $199. Go to theragun.com slash locked on, the name of this network, right now, and get your Gen 4 Theragun today. That's theragun.com slash locked on, theragun.com slash locked on. The NBA restart has its first big injury. From our local experts to your ears, these are the biggest stories on the Locked On Podcast Network. Orlando Magic forward Jonathan Isaac suffered a torn ACL in his left knee on Sunday. Listen to Locked On Magic for where Isaac and Orlando goes from here. To the ice. The qualifying series in the NHL are on, and the Minnesota Wild began with a 3-0 win over the Canucks. Joe Bully and Tony Abbott of Locked On Wild have a victory recap, and the Locked On NHL podcast has Western Conference playoff predictions. And finally, as college football conferences around the country try to figure out how they are going to restart, a group of Pac-12 players is demanding safety protocols and threatening to opt out of the season. I would point you to Locked On Big Ten podcast and a very interesting discussion on creative solutions to solve college football's mounting problems. Local experts on the biggest stories, it's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. As the calendar turned to December, the Utah Jazz beat the Washington Wizards, moved to 10-8 and eight on the season, but Carl Malone had bruised his right knee, was having fluid drained from it before every game, and of course, did not miss any. The Jazz would head to Texas on a two-game road trip to face the San Antonio Spurs first, who'd beat them twice in a row for the Midwest Division. And the Jazz with 121 left, the Spurs had a 92-98 lead, but San Antonio would not score again. The mailman would hit two free throws late. Willie Anderson would drive and get tied up for John Stockton on a jump ball. And somehow John Stockton with 10 seconds left in a jump ball against the six foot seven Willie Anderson would win the jump ball. Mark Eaton would end up with the ball. He'd throw it over to Blue Edwards. Blue Edwards would go the length of the court and the Jazz would win it on a Blue Edwards 17 foot banker giving the Jazz the win over their Midwest Division rival. Willie Anderson, after the game, was furious. It was a bad toss, and Stockton threw his body into me. Well, John Stockton found a way, trailing to win a jump ball against a six foot seven Willie Anderson, and the Jazz would go on to beat the San Antonio Spurs. The Jazz the next night would head to Houston, playing their fourth game in five nights. And despite that, the Jazz would win consecutive games in Texas for the first time since 1985-86. A 96-91 win, despite the mailman being in foul trouble and scoring just 15, and the Jazz not having a field goal for the final 7 minutes and 18 seconds. The Jazz would come home, and the All-Star game would finally be announced. The announcement that was delayed due to the Magic Johnson HIV diagnosis, and ironically enough, the Jazz next stop would be the Lakers, the magicless Lakers, and the Jazz would win again on the road. The Jazz, who'd never won 19 road games in a season, were now 7-7 seven and seven on the road. The Clippers were the next stop, a Clipper team that was revitalized. 
All of a sudden, they'd won seven in a row when John Stockton missed a 17-footer to win it in regulation. And in overtime, Blue Edwards, the hero just nights before, missed a 12-footer. And the Clippers had beat the Jazz despite the fact that the Jazz led by 19 at the half. Now the Jazz came home. It was December 14th. The Detroit Pistons were in town. And remember all the shenanigans that happened before. There was seven minutes and 32 seconds left in the first quarter. The great Hot Rod Hundley on the call. Down <laughs> he goes, Isaiah. We got a whistle. Isaiah's eyes cut badly. Oh, he took a blow to the head. Blood all over his forehead. Isaiah Thomas, Carl Malone being separated. Here comes off the bench. Walker throwing punches. They have to be restrained. And the referees are taking them off the floor. Chuck Daly's going crazy. Isaiah Thomas hurt badly. Chuck Daly has to be restrained by Eddie Middleton. Chuck Daly, Eddie Middleton holding back. Isaiah on the floor, and the trainer works over him. And Brendan Sir and Chuck Daly being pushed back by Eddie Middleton. Oh, baby, already with only four and a half minutes gone by, Tippers Flair here. The boy, he went down hard. Isaiah Thomas, here is that play. He went to the right. Eaton jumps out on him. Isaiah gets by him. Carl Malone, bam, right there with a right elbow. Caught him across the head, the forehead, and down he went on his back. Well, you really can't say if that was intentional or not. He went up with his arm like to block the shot. Go straight up. He didn't go up the throw. He really turned his back on the play. So it's hard to say whether or not that was intentional or not. But the right elbow caught Isaiah. Down he goes. Craig Bowlerjack, then the sports anchor for KSL 5, and Steve Loom, Salt Lake Tribune beat reporter, remember it well. Well, let's just say it was a physical, physical blow, physical moment. Uh, Carl's a powerfully built man, but let me just say the power Carl Malone was on full display. There was a collision. There probably was a message behind it. Not necessarily for it that uh, Isaiah did, you know, a couple weeks before. Uh, you know, Isaiah was a great enough player. He could he could lit up any team. But and he did catch him with his elbow on his forehead. I and the cut that I remember seeing was uh, was beyond compare. Um, you know, it was like a cantaloupe being popped at that particular time. Sorry to be that graphic, but as I remember watching from that angle, um, it was it was quite a hit. And of course, the outrage that followed. Um, was um, on the floor. Remember, uh, was was uh, was at a high high level. Malone would get ejected, but if you go back and listen to the broadcast of Hot Rod Hudley and Ron Boone, they seemed a bit surprised. Dennis Rodman is beckoning that they'll throw Carl Malone out of the ball game. Uh, no, no, no. And, and it's I don't know how they can do that because they'll have to say that it, it was intentional. And it doesn't look intentional on the replay. Well, it's just a two-shot foul. It's called. So they're still uh, waiting. Driving right side. His intention to go all the way for the layup. He got by Eaton. Then the forearm and the right elbow of Carl Malone as he turned his back. Down he went on his back. He's ejected from the game. Oh, who's being ejected from the game? Well, he's putting Carl Malone out of the game. They're ejecting Carl Malone from the game. 
Flagrant foul. Two shot foul. Flagrant Carl Malone has been ejected, and Detroit retains, retains possession. The Pistons went bananas. Bill Lambeer called it premeditated. Quote, even the referees said there should be a major suspension. It was pretty blatant, premeditated. He lit them up for 44 last time, and I'd say that's a premeditated situation. They didn't want him to embarrass Stockton again, said Lambeer. Chuck Daly called it a vicious foul, a very early foul after a 44-point performance at home. Orlando Woolridge of the Pistons said there's no place in basketball for that. And Thomas, who actually returned for the final minutes of that game, a game the Jazz, by the way, would win 102-100, said afterwards, I haven't seen a replay of it, so I really can't say what happened in the play. It hurt. It was a hard hit. I was a little scared. I was a lot scared. It felt like I'd been shot in the head. And Carl Malone had this to say. You know, I never degraded anybody. I never went at anybody intentionally and things like that. And I'm not going to get into one of those things where going back and forth. Like I said, uh, I hope Isaiah's okay. Hey, when you play in the NBA, you do get bumped. You get bumped hard. It's just one of those things where I have to go on with my career and my life and I'm not going to make it hard on anybody. So the question lingers still today. Did Carl Malone premeditate a foul on Isaiah Thomas because he scored 44 points or because someone had to stand up for John Stockton the way Jerry Sloan said in Detroit? The reporters of the game, Steve Liu, Salt Lake Tribune, Brad Rock, Deseret News. Here's what they had to say. I don't think Malone did it on purpose. I think he wanted to make a hard foul and a 92 foul. If you'll watch, the referee doesn't react immediately. He he raises his arm and he calls a regular foul. Isaiah hits the floor like a six foot one, uh, hundred and ninety pound guy does if he hits Carl Malone full speed. But then then he started bleeding, <laughs> and when there's blood all over the floor, that makes it a different thing. And of course, the Pistons at the time, Chuck Daly ran down on the floor, and Rodman and Lambeer or you know putting their arms in the air, throw them out, throw them out. Um, so the referees. I've seen the video, and I'm, I haven't changed my mind from the night he did it. it. I felt that if Carl was intentionally trying to hurt him, he would have hit him with his elbow coming back and swung it back at him. He came down kind of with a straight arm and caught him as he was going up. I didn't think it was on purpose. He, he might have wanted to give him a hard foul. And not only was the controversy if it was intentional, but there also began to be a controversy about the magnitude. I don't know where the 40 stitch thing got started. I think maybe they announced that that night, but I talked to the doctors who worked on Isaiah that night and it was seven. And uh, that's once the cat out of the bag. It's, it's um, and, and I'm not trying to minimize a seven stitch gash on a guy's forehead that could, could have been more dangerous. I've heard since then, but on sources that can't be disputed that it was 13 or 14 stitches. Isaiah had a captive audience. He had the Detroit newspapers. And one of the two, I think it was the Detroit News, was a Gannett paper at the time. And and Gannett owned USA Today. So the papers there would go to Isaiah and he'd say, I could have been blinded. It could have ruined my career. I could have ended my career. It ends up in USA Today. And Carl had this terrible reputation as a, as a very dirty player. And you know what? Detroit was the dirtiest team in the league, and everybody knew that. The universal comment still today is the only one who knows 
is Carl Malone. Steep, but I think the thing about it, I had worst thing happen to me in my life, and it's one of those things where you got to go head on because you know you can't you can't fight the system or nothing like that. You just got to play and hey, if they see what was justified, that's what they saw. But uh, I know in my heart what happened. I don't play like that. And I don't have to. Was it premeditated? Did he mean to? Was it a dirty, vicious play? That's for you to decide. But Craig Bullerjack says we can still see the impact. When I see Isaiah today, you can see you can still see where the scar and the stitches, uh, what Car, you know, just what Carl Malone left on uh, that eyebrow of Isaiah. Malone would in fact get suspended. The Jazz would go on the road, and Jeff Malone would lead them to wins over the Charlotte Hornets and the Philadelphia 76ers. And all of a sudden, the Jazz were 17-9, and nine, seemingly found themselves a rhythm both at home and on the road. Ahead on the 1991-92 Utah Jazz season, the most pivotal of them all, the Jazz would play the greatest game in regular season history. And Stockton and Malone would continue their remarkable growth as the Jazz embark on a stretch run for the Midwest Division title. Rejecting the screen has been retweeted by Kobe, Dame Lillard, and Vince Carter, so it's fair to say you should give it a shot. I'm Noah Kozlov. And I'm Adam Stanko. Rejecting the screen hits your feed every Tuesday and Thursday. On Tuesday, we talk hoops and a little bit of life. On Thursday, we go ISO with a guest. Stories from anyone and everyone who has touched the NBA with tales we promise you've never heard before. Find Rejecting the Screen right now wherever you get podcasts and hit that subscribe button.